This is a sermon preached at Grace Covenant as part of a series uh, called Explore God, which was uh, a series where we partnered with about 30 churches in Williamsburg exploring different questions uh, that many of us have about the existence of God and so forth. And uh, there was a little bumper video right before the uh Right before I walked up there, and I just wanted to explain that it was people sort of posing the question, why does God allow suffering and giving their answers to it? And uh, that's just something you need to know before you hear the hilarious joke I tell at the beginning that I just I just couldn't cut uh, out of this. Um, so I uh, hope this is helpful, particularly now as we're all in the midst of, of suffering uh, here locally and around the world. And uh, we're in the middle of a series here at Grace Covenant uh, in conjunction with about 30 churches here in town called Explore God. We're asking uh, some of life's biggest questions. Uh, and two weeks ago, we looked at, does life have a purpose? Uh, last week, is there a God? And in the future, we'll talk about, can we trust the Bible? Uh, is Jesus, in fact, God? Can we know God personally? And this week, um, up until that video was playing, I thought I had a, a different question, so I'm going to adapt. I thought that my question was... Um, how is the Burger King next to Target still in business? Um, it written everything. Um, I've never seen a customer there, you know? You drive by and it definitely proves that there is a God, uh, but not necessarily, not necessarily that he is good. Um, you know, I mean, Chick-fil-A is right. Anyway, um, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. If lovers and stockholders of Burger King, I'm just kidding. Uh, we have a very difficult subject today, the, the question of how does God allow pain and suffering and why, uh, which I wanted to introduce a little levity before we uh, dive into the deep end here. Um, but uh, this question is a hard one uh, for a number of reasons. It's a, it's a hard question for all of us, I think. It's probably, to me, of the seven on the list, the, the most personal one, the one that's hardest uh, as I examine my own life and, and things that I have been through. Um, and it's also a question that the Bible itself asks quite frequently. And I would say it encourages us to ask and wrestle with. Um, I don't think we're going to solve it this morning in the next 25 to 30 minutes. Um, I don't think that this will be the moment that the history of philosophy points back to and says this on, on that Sunday morning the problem was tied up in a bow. But we're, what we're going to do is we're going to wrestle with it together and explore what the Bible has to say. So I'm going to be bouncing around a lot of text, but I'm going to begin with a psalm of lament, Psalm 13, written by King David. This is the first couple of verses. Psalm 13, 1 and 2, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord God, we thank you uh, that we can come to you with our questions, uh, that we can go to one another and wrestle with things, things together. We pray that you would be with us and speak to us now, whether we are currently living a life of ease and suffering seems uh, like an idea over there, or whether we are in the midst of a tremendous hardship, perhaps that no one else knows. Um, would you show up for us today, and would you speak to us, and would you give us comfort? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you've been at this church for 11 years or more, you've heard me uh, read this story to you, but I want to use it again. Um, I hope a decade was long enough for you to forget it, uh, and, um, and I think it's very uh, apt for our topic today. Uh, this is from an article that was 
written in the March 2003 Atlantic, um, and it's about uh, an event that took place in 2001. Let me read it to you. On a Tuesday evening in late August of 2001, I was wandering around Greenwich Village and ended up at the Village Vanguard. After 60-some years of business, this illustrious little jazz haunt hasn't changed. It remains one of the inexplicable constants of the Manhattan landscape. Among jazz fans and musicians, the Village Vanguard is clearly a paragon of the music's own kind of purity, one that's neither temporary nor unnatural. I walked in on a set in progress and took the next to last seat on the burgundy leather banquet that runs along the east wall. The performance was languid, my eyes drifted, settling eventually on the trumpet player because he was turned away from the audience and even from the rest of the band staring at the floor. Although I couldn't place him, he looked vaguely familiar, like an older version of Wynton Marsalis, who's a famous jazz trumpeter if you don't know. During the third song, the trumpeter stepped to the center of the bandstand to take a solo. Excuse me, I whispered to the fellow next to me. Is that Wynton Marsalis? I seriously doubt it, he replied. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, who I could now see was indeed Marsalis, but who no, longer, who no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. Anybody know him? I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. Marsalis did it better, but I just wanted you to have it in your head. Uh, written by Victor Young, a film score composer for a 1930s romance, the piece can bring out the sadness in any scene. And Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs at points nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement, in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until at that most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off, blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electronic beeps. And this was 2001, so it was a 2001 cell, remember those? People started giggling and picking up their drinks. The moment, the whole performance unraveled. I scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. So we live in a beautiful world. And, and to exist on planet Earth as a human being is this glorious thing, isn't it? You look around and you see the beauty of it. You experience relationships and love and pleasure and delight. But into that beautiful song, like a blaring cell phone, comes pain and suffering and catastrophe and death and evil, ruining the good magic. And as we encounter that in all of our lives, it raises our deepest experiential and existential questions as well as intellectual, philosophical questions for all of us. And so today we want to look at what does the Bible have to say about all of this suffering and pain. Uh, first, I want to say the Bible speaks to the reality of suffering. It acknowledges the reality of suffering. The Bible is open and honest about this. 
Uh, I think we can have a perception that Christianity is this sort of blissfully naive thing. And sometimes we believe that as Christians, if you're a believer, and sometimes that's how believers look to you from the outside if you are skeptical of Christianity, this idea of ease and comfort and everything's going to be okay. But you can hardly read two pages of the Bible without encountering the reality of oppression and affliction and death and groaning and weeping and sorrow all throughout it. Uh, famously in the book of Job, it deals with this, this man who is faithful. The Bible says he is blameless before God, a righteous man, and everything is taken away. His family dies, his wealth is taken, his, his health fails, and he is left there afflicted, being somewhat comforted by some friends whose advice is sort of good, but not really. And he's alone. And his own wife tells him to curse God and die. And he says, it would have been better if I had never been born. And then there are the Psalms of Lament. The most common uh, genre of psalm in the book of Psalms is one of lament. The prophets are full of them as well. We have a book called Lamentations. And in this idea, this category called lament, we're encouraged to grieve, to question, to wrestle with our sufferings. They even, the writers of scripture even talk about bringing their complaint to God, almost like an accusation of him. And I, I wanted to point this out. I think most of you know that the Bible is honest about suffering. But for many of you, if you're going through something very difficult, that might just be where you are right now. And the things we're going to talk about later that are trying to deal with sort of the big picture of it, uh, maybe just where you need to be is in the midst of a lament. Maybe what you need is not an explanation for the, the why of everything, but you need the courage and the freedom to take your complaint to the Lord. Or the courage and the freedom to listen to somebody else's complaint to the Lord without leapfrogging over to heaven and not, not being with them in the midst of that suffering. You might say an honest and true thing that is from Scripture, but it's not necessarily helpful to the person who is in great pain. The Bible calls us to wrestle with God in the midst of all of that. That's not unspiritual. We are to cry Christian tears in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of the suffering of others. But my assignment today is also to deal with some of the more of the why. What is the source, ultimately, of this suffering? Why is it a reality? So second, I want to look at the root of suffering. The root of suffering, where does it come from? What causes it? The biblical narrative of human life doesn't begin with suffering. On the first page of the book, we see at the very beginning, we see human beings live, living with God and his creation in harmony, something that God declares to be very good. It's full of life. It's full of beauty. It's a wrenching act of creative expression in the opening pages of the Bible, to borrow a line from the article. And then sin and evil enter. Mankind rebels against God, bringing chaos and death and pain into the world as a consequence of their departure from God and his ways. The cell phone is blaring there on the second page of the Bible. And part of what the Bible is saying to us is that while it doesn't explain everything, I think especially if we think of natural disasters and other things, but that the original order of creation, that somehow we were able to live in harmony with that and with God and with one another, and that the ultimate culpability lands on human beings. The ultimate root cause is our rebellion against God. Not that you yourself are the direct cause of the suffering in your life. We can jump to that very easily. It's not that like you're going through something hard because of something that you did. North Carolina must really need to get their act together and that's why Florence came. That's not what the Bible is saying. But it is saying that each of us have and do participate in the increase of suffering. I have added to the world's suffering 
through my own willful disobedience of God. The cell phone is in my hand. I'm the guy that forgot to put it on silent. I'm part of it. I'm adding to the discord of the world. Which then begs the question, though, right? But why would God allow that? (laughs) And why does he allow it to continue? Uh, Job asked that very question. After his suffering, he's, he argues back and forth with his friends. He's saying, I don't actually deserve this. God is still just. I can't figure out why. And then finally, he says, you know what? I'm going to challenge God. I'm going to bring my case to him. I'm going to ask. No, I'm going to demand an answer. What is going on? And then God does answer, but he answers uh, with a question. Job 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. How about that? He appears to him in the form of a storm of a whirlwind, and he says, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God's answer to Job is essentially, Job, this is confusing to you. He's not this gentle, though. (laughs) You don't have enough information to make the assessment that you're making. You weren't there when I built this whole thing. You don't know what I know. In the New Testament, Paul very famously anticipates us asking a similar question. He has just said that God is free to to have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion and even to harden those that he wishes to harden. And he anticipates the question that all of us want to ask. Romans chapter 9, he says this, You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who could resist his will? It's a good question. Paul goes on. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And then he unfolds this analogy of a potter and clay. We're the clay, God's the potter. That's Paul's answer to why. That's God's answer to Job. It seems pretty harsh, and frankly, it doesn't feel super satisfying when you're in the midst of suffering and when you're trying to solve these problems. But, but, if God is God, then it is reasonable to assume that at some point his answer to me will be, you wouldn't understand, just trust me. If God is God, it's reasonable for me, if I'm trying to know him or decide whether he's real, It's, I should expect his answer to be, I know what I'm doing, trust me. Because if God is infinite and I'm finite, then of course there's going to be a limit, a lid, a cap to my understanding for why and how he does the things that he does. Um, By illustration, I have a four-year-old daughter. um, And pretend that I know calculus. And when I was senior in high school, I knew some calculus. I don't anymore. Um, If we froze uh, her in time at her current developmental stage, I could try to teach calculus to her for a thousand years. But because of her capacity, her developmental neurological capacity, she could never understand it. She would never know. And at some point I would say, trust me, microwaves work. Uh, You know, like, I think calculus is used to make microwaves. I don't know. Um, (laughs) You know, and it would be reasonable for her to look at me and when I just say, you can't understand it, just trust me, it works. She would not be irrational to believe me. Does that make sense? 
And so if we say, I'm not going to believe in God until all of my questions are answered, until I fully understand the why of everything, puts me in an impossible position of being unable to ever believe in God, even if he did exist. Does that make sense? I could never believe in him because I would never have all my questions answered. So the trust me, not only should we not reject that, we should expect it. We should expect that kind of answer. It's not a surprise. It's a reasonable thing to expect. Now, okay, that's, that's hard. We're going to put that in a box, and we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I just wanted to put that out there. And I also want to say, don't forget point number one, believers. So I think as Christians, we can very naively and quickly say, God has his reasons. He moves in a mysterious way. He's working it all out for good to someone who's actually suffering and do great damage. Um, and it sounds incredibly trite and dismissive. Um, we can't just put bumper sticker platitudes on our suffering and expect them to go away, that we are called to wrestle into it and bring those questions to God. But at the same time, we are not allowed to just be presumptuous and cynical and say, well, if I don't have my answer, I'm out. Those are our range here. Okay, so maybe that makes some sense. Maybe you can say, okay, I can understand the, the idea that if God is real, then I should expect to not understand why and how he does what he does, but I need some comfort. Where is the comfort? Is there more than that? Is just trust me all that he says. I know better than you. Believe me. So I want to look at a third thing. He says a great deal more than that. And finally, it's that there is a redemption to suffering, or maybe even redemption through suffering. Uh, at the climax of the book of Genesis, the, the book that introduces this idea of a beautiful world that has gone very wrong and unfolds this story of mankind increasing in our wickedness and rebellion and hurting one another, and God intervenes throughout the book over and over and over again. At the climax of that book, there's a scene where, uh, if you know the, the book of Genesis well, you know it well, of, of Joseph, who has been sold into slavery by his brothers. And then God has used that to put him at the right hand of the Pharaoh, and he's able to save up the grain, and a bunch of people who are starving to death in a famine are able to stay alive through that sequence of events. But their father has died, and Joseph's brothers are like, now that dad's dead, I bet Joseph's going to kill us because he's really powerful and we're not. And so they come to him, hat in hand, and Joseph says this to them, the very end of the book, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So he's saying, I'm not God. The lesson of Job. And then he goes on, as for you, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, to save many people alive. You hear what he said? You intended it for evil. He calls it evil. He's saying that they are culpable, that they are responsible, that they did it, that it was wrong. And God intended it, the very same action, for good. That God is fully sovereign. God is in control. This is part of his plan. You're responsible. It's still in his plan. How do those two things fit together? How do, what do we do with that? This is a problem for us as believers. And I love that the Bible just lays it out, like in the very first book and then all throughout, lays these two things side by side. Sovereignty, control of God, plan of God, and our responsibility, our agency, our real decisions that we make. It's a problem uh, for Christians, but it's not just a problem for Christians. I think it's a problem for almost any worldview you could think of. Um, this idea of fate versus free will, determinism, Everything set in motion versus chaos and freedom. Um, 
determinists, some of whom are friends of mine. I have some friends who are determinists, and it's actually like philosophically and logically pretty tight. Determinism, basically my friends who are determinists, they don't believe in God at all, so the material world is all that there is. And they recognize that if that is all that there is, that the Big Bang sets things in motion, and that my mind, the planet Earth, including me and my mind, are a product of this sequence and chain of events. And so I know the thoughts that are in my head, but I have to recognize that those are just the conclusion of the thing that happened right before. And that my brain is wired in such a way and is built in such a way and is designed in such a way, not designed in such a way, they can't say it's designed, uh, is, uh, happens in such a way that, that I cannot help but think the way that I think. And it's shaped by all sorts of things. And yet, of course, if I were to punch my friend in the face, uh, and this is where I always go, I say, you know, if I punch you in the face, which um, I did once and I won't do it again. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. Um, the, they wouldn't say, well, Ben couldn't help that because he was predetermined by this whole sequence of events. They would, they would have within them this very sense that that was wrong, that Ben chose to do that, and he is culpable for it. They also still wear seat belts and look both ways before they cross the street. Like, all sorts of things that they do. It's very hard to actually live like you're a determinist if you claim to be a determinist. Um, especially when it comes to morality. There's something that you look at and you say, that is really, really wrong. And I know it. Um, but on the other hand, if you believe in total freedom, total human free agency, um, well, not really, right? I mean, you didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose the parents that you had. You didn't choose your intellectual capacity that you were born with innately. You didn't choose the culture that informs the way that you think and how you form opinions. I didn't choose to like chocolate ice cream more than vanilla. It's a preference. I'm a slave to that preference. Um, it just is what it is, and on and on and on. So I, I like to say, you know, uh, so I work at William & Mary, so I talk about these things a lot uh, with, with students and stuff. And I say, you know, go to Blair Hall, that's where the philosophy department is, and knock on every door of all the professors and, like, let's all get together in a room and be like, okay, guys, like, are, is determinism the thing or is free will the thing? Like, which is it? And just, like, let them go, right? <laughs> like, pack a lunch. Like, you are going to be there for a while, and they're going to write books on it, and some of them have. You know, it's, this is a real... Uh, intense philosophical question, and because this is this question that permeates all sorts of things that philosophers can argue about for uh, hundreds of years, literally, um, God's response of, you got to trust me on this one, of all the places I should really expect him to say that, it should be this mystery. How do these two things work together? It's a frustrating answer, but it's something that we should expect, especially if through the Bible... It gives me recourse to express or even protest my pain to God in the midst of it. I shouldn't be surprised that this would be a place where he says, trust me. My point is that that is rational. That is a reasonable thing to think, to trust God that I won't get it. But at the same time, suffering is harder than that, right? It's existential. It's my experience. It's... Suffering is called suffering. It is pain. It hurts. And so I want to look at one more passage. And this is the very first public preaching of the gospel after Jesus has died and risen again and ascended into heaven. So in the history of the world, the very first time that the story of Jesus is told in public, okay, ever, and Peter stands up and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's identifying Jesus as a miracle worker that people saw. They knew of him. This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear it? Sovereignty, responsibility, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned this. It was definite. He foreknew it. It was in the script. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. He's playing the evil, the culpability in their lap. Responsibility and sovereignty. The foreknowledge and definite plan you crucified. Determinism and chaos, fate and freedom, sovereignty and responsibility, how do they fit together? And what's right in the middle of that grand mystery? What is the focal point? The focal point of one of the greatest philosophical mysteries known to man and the greatest existential, experiential struggle of human life, namely suffering and pain and death, right in the middle of that is the crucifixion of the Son of God. God himself entering our world and bearing the brunt of our evil and our suffering and our pain. The focal point. Who himself cries out a psalm of lament and questioning of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Echoing Psalm 22. Why? So that we could know him. So that we could have forgiveness. So that he could be resurrected and we would have life so that he could restore the broken world that we destroyed. So his trust me isn't just, I'm smarter than you. I know better than you. You don't have all the information, but he has skin in the game, literally. He has blood on the floor. He has suffered. He has bled. The theologian John Stott puts it like this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on a cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could one worship a God who was immune to pain? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Eastern countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I had to turn away, and in my imagination I turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness, which is the very wrath of God being poured out on his son. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the mark of the cross, which symbolizes the divine suffering. And then he breaks into prayer. This is amazing. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to your throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and no other God has wounds. No other God has wounds. 
So that as Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That he entered into the pain and the sorrow and the blood of our lives and our suffering to bring about that resurrection. He enters into the noise of human evil and suffers under it and redeemed it and used it for good to bring about our salvation. I'm going to go back to the article. Marsalis, the trumpeter, paused for a beat, motionless, his eyebrows arched. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall and the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. And then he repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and had throttled back down to a ballad tempo. And he ended up exactly where he had left off. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. The ovation was tremendous. End of article. Why does God allow suffering? We don't fully know all of the answers. His answer to us is trust me. But the Bible is saying God is working so that his love, his grace, and justice are put on display all the more through it. Marsalis is shown in the midst of that moment not just to be a great trumpet player, but to be a genius. He is brilliant. His performance is actually made better. And so God's love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness are put more on display through the cross, through the resurrection, through the forgiveness accomplished and applied to us through his entering the world for us. From death comes resurrection. From suffering, he brings redemption. And just as he has done that in the big, big pages of life, over the, the whole cosmos to renew our whole world and even universe, he also does it in little bitty ways in our life. So that when you look up suffering references all through the New Testament, they're talking about suffering produces perseverance. Count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds because we are entering with Christ into that suffering as he did for us. And just as he brought resurrection out of his death, he brings it about in our own lives. In the midst of complaining and wrestling and weeping and crying with him, knowing that he's not just saying, trust me, but my blood is on the floor for you because I love you. What you have intended for evil, I have made good. I love you. You can trust me. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you uh, would show yourself to us in the midst of our suffering. Um, many of us here uh, have many doubts and questions and are in a lot of pain. And you know that pain full well. And you have walked our, our life with us. And you are with us even now. We pray that you would bring comfort and joy and redemption. And be with us in the middle as we wait for you, and as we cry out with King David, how long? Come quickly, we pray. Amen. To dig deeper into this question and so many others, you can visit exploregod.com. They've got amazing resources there, articles, videos, uh, Q&A sections, and so forth. Uh, they uh, are a really great ministry, and it was really fun to partner with them and to continue to use uh, their resources that are all there, and they're free. 
So uh, make use of them. And also, uh, of course, subscribe uh, to the podcast. Share this with friends if it's helpful to you. And uh, more will be coming soon. Did you know that RUF spells rough?